The book of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. Book of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. This is God's holy word. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you will surely die or eat of it. You will surely die. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Two quotes that I think are are great launching pads after hearing God's word, which is the ultimate launching pad for our sermon this morning. C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the doctrine of the covenant, and we've been talking about covenant for the past few weeks, lies at the root of all true theology. Meaning this, it, it's, it's the launching pad for everything else. Are you with me? It has been said that he who understands the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is a master of divinity. He who understands works versus he who understands grace is one who knows the gospel well. And do we not need the gospel and be equipped with the gospel, especially in this day and time? Spurgeon goes on to say, I am persuaded that most of the mistakes, most of the mistakes that men make concerning the doctrines of Scripture are based where, where Charles, are based upon a fundamental or fundamental errors with regard to the covenant of law and grace. Spurgeon is saying all the other covenants as you go throughout Scripture, the errors that people make are fundamentally beginning with the error that people make with the doctrine of the covenant of works. You hear that? Big, big deal. Nehemiah Cox, one of our uh, particular Baptist forefathers, if a man misses this right account, if you get this wrong, he is certainly bewildered, confused, in all other, all further searchings for that truth which most concerns him to know. Me- meaning, if you get this wrong, you're going to get a bunch of other things wrong. And it's going to be all rooted in this one thing that you should be getting right. So over the past two weeks, we've been discussing the covenant of works. And for many of you, if not most of you, the doctrine of the covenant of works is is something that's new to your ears. Raise your hand if before two weeks ago you had ever even heard of the, the doctrine of the covenant of works. Never heard of it. Yeah, that makes sense. You may have even said when I said the covenant of works, the covenant of what? covenant of works i've heard of the new covenant i've heard of the abrahamic covenant heard of a covenant between god and moses something like that but i don't see even the word covenant in the garden at all so where are you getting this covenant of works from that may have been some of you it's maybe new to your ears but it's not new to christianity big point it's also not new to reform theology The covenant of works is not something new to Christianity, nor is it something new to Reformed theology. Again, you may have said, but does it even matter? Does it matter, this this so-called covenant of works? Is it really important or that important that I understand this doctrine? And if so, why is it important? It's very important that you understand this doctrine. 
it's important that you understand the doctrine of the covenant of works because, now here's why. Because the doctrine of the covenant of works is the reason why the Son of God came in the flesh. So, we are all benefiting greatly from the coming, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the coming, the living, the dying, and the rising of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all benefiting from that. But do you know why he came in the first place? We may say yes to save us from our sin. What sin? How did we sin? Well, Adam's sin. What does that have to do with you? Are you following me now? This is all leading back to what we've been talking about, the covenant of works. So, why did the Lord Jesus Christ come? We're going to answer that question. We're going to, to flesh that out. And it's not a dramatic statement for me to say, you understanding the covenant of works is of the utmost importance because it is why the Lord Jesus Christ came. I'm not saying that for dramatics. I'm saying that because that's the truth, according to the scriptures. The Lord God created man in his own image. He gave his man. Who was his man? Adam. He gave Adam a job. Adam was called to be priest, prophet, and king. Of, of where? All the earth. But where must he begin his rule? In the garden. So Adam begins his rule in the garden. And what was the garden? It was the first temple, the first uh, standard of temples that would later be established by God. It was the place where God communed with man, the place where God fellowshiped with man in perfect harmony, without sin. God made a, a covenant with Adam, and this covenant fell under the duties of Adam as priest, prophet, and king. God makes a covenant with Adam. And again, that covenant is a part of his calling. It's a part of who he is as priest, prophet, and king. It's also a part of his responsibility to subdue the earth and have dominion. All of these things are connected. So when you see subdue, when you see dominion, when you see all of the things that are present in the garden, they are all falling under even Adam's covenant with God. Does that make sense? There's a lot going on there. And I think one of uh, Brother Ray actually as we were walking out last Lord's Day, he said, detail. I never realized there was so much detail in the book of Genesis. And, and you may be understanding the same now, that there is so much more there than I ever realized. But let's get to the basics. Here's a simple one for you. What's a covenant? What is a covenant? We've been saying the word a lot. What is a covenant? Here, very simply... It's a commitment. Very simply, what's a covenant? It's a commitment. It's an agreement. Between who? Between two parties. Between two parties. Two people. Two parties. It, it, it includes what? So here's, here's your base. Covenant is a, an agreement. A commitment. What does it include? What, what are some of the things that you would see in a covenant? You would see sanctions or consequences. For what? What is a sanction for or, or a consequent? A consequence. A consequence is, is present when someone fails to keep their end of the covenant. 
or their end of the agreement. Does that make sense? So if you make an agreement with someone, and in that agreement you say, we'll, we'll come together and, and we'll agree that if the Warriors win, sorry, John, you sit in the front. We made a little a pact between the two of us. This is online, so yes, we did bet. Um, here's the agreement. When we win, the Warriors, you buy me a shirt. I wear a medium. Don't buy me cotton because I want, I want soft on my body. I don't want that, that hard. Yeah, I like the, the half polyester, half cotton. It feels better. I told John ahead of time. And my agreement to him is, if you win, I will buy you a shirt, a championship shirt. Now, there were no sanctions, but I would not ever make another agreement with John ever again if he did not, fit, if he did not keep his end of the bargain, right? And when we won, as we, we knew we would, John kept his end of the bargain and bought me a T-shirt. It was not polyester cotton, though. He bought me the 100% cotton just to smite me. Very simple understanding of, of a, a commitment, of a covenant. But that's a very low surface level of example of a covenant. Okay? Now, when we're talking about God and covenant, it's completely different. It's completely different. In this covenant between God and Adam, two people did not sit down and agree. Like me and John did. Instead, God imposed a covenant on Adam. Does that make sense? God tells Adam, this is what it will be. Now, how does God have the right to do so? There's a very simple answer to that. Let's say it. Oh, that's great. See, you understand this a lot better than you think. God imposes a covenant on Adam, and, he, and he's allowed to do that. He has the right to do that simply because he's God. Now, Adam did not ask Adam did not ask for God to come into this agreement with him. God again imposed it. But, but think about this. What God was offering Adam was something wonderful. God was not coming to Adam and offering him something terrible. It was terrible if he disobeyed. But God was offering Adam something wonderful if he did obey. It was something that could improve his life. But it was also something that could make his life worse, depending on what he did. Are you with me? Now, Adam didn't deserve the creator to come to him in the first place. Adam didn't deserve the creator to, to make him in the first place. It was a gracious move, a gracious act of, of God to make Adam and also to mercifully, graciously make a covenant with Adam. Adam had no say in this covenant. Again, they did not sit down and, and come to terms on this, this covenant. Does that make sense? Adam and God didn't sit down at a bargaining table and then say, okay, we agree, let's do this. It was not that way. Brothers and sisters, it's important for you to understand this imposition, meaning this, this imposing. God imposes a covenant, and it may sound harsh, but again, it is a wonderful covenant that God is making with Adam. God is the creator. He has the right to do whatever he wants to do. Now listen, whatever God does is right. Amen? God doesn't look at right and say, I'll do that because it's right. Whatever God does is right because he is righteous. 
It is one of his perfections, right? Uh, all, all that God is, is right. Because he is that. He's the very epitome of that. He's the very definition of that. Are you with me? But have you ever asked, why did God do all of this to begin with? You ever say, why did he even put the tree there? If he knew that Adam was going to fall, why even put the tree there in the first place? You ever ask that question? Or have you ever been asked that question? Here's your answer to that. Who are you to judge the actions of God? For those who think they're so right or so, so, so smart, it doesn't sound like a, well, yeah. Why would God even do something like that? Who do you think you are is your response. You don't need to waste time trying to argue with him. Instead, he is God and you're not. There's your answer, friend. And it's a cheeky answer. It's a smart aleck answer. But it's God's answer. Now, I'm not calling God a smart, smart aleck by any means or, or cheeky, but he is God. And he can say or do whatever he wants to do because he is God. He does what he pleases, and whatever he does is right. So important. So very important. So God brings this covenant to bear upon his creature, Adam. Imposes this covenant. Now, what was this covenant? What is it? What is the commitment that God imposes on Adam? We just read it. Look at Genesis 2.16. Here's, here's the, the covenant. Here's the terms or sanctions, commands of the covenant. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, here's a technical saying that I'm going to give you, but write it down because it's important. The Lord God gave Adam a positive law with a negative command. The Lord God gives Adam a positive law with a negative command. What does that mean? What does it mean that God gives Adam a positive law? Bless you. As you're studying through the scriptures, you will encounter many positive laws. They are laws that are, here you go, not moral. You got that? They are laws that are, that are not moral. They, they are, there's nothing wrong with that law in and of itself. Are you with me? But it becomes wrong... When God commands, when God makes commands, or when God commands that law, when God gives that law, and he gives them, why does he give these positive laws? For a people, a purpose, a place, and a time. You'll see positive laws, and they are for a specific people, for a specific purpose, for a specific place and time. They are positive laws. Positive, why? Because they're added. They're not moral. Are you with me? Uh, brothers and sisters, is lying a moral law or a positive law? Uh, do not lie. Is that a moral law? Sorry. Is do not lie a moral law or a positive law? What's that? Moral law. Very good. Do all men know that, that we should not lie? Does that law change ever? No. Uh, Honor your father and mother, little ones. Is that, a, is that a law that is positive or moral? Moral. Does it ever change? No, it does not. 
And we can go through all Ten Commandments and say the same exact thing. Now, we have discussed this. What's an example of a positive law? Circumcision. Circumcision. It was for a specific people, purpose, place, and time. Now, is there something right or wrong about circumcision in and of itself? If someone is not circumcised, does that make them evil? No. It was for a specific people, place, purpose, time. It was a positive law. Now, what are we talking about right here? Another positive law. God gave Adam that positive law that had a negative command. What's the, what's the positive law? Don't eat from the tree. Here's what's negative about it. You are not allowed to do something. Okay, so the positive law added negative command. Do not. Are you with me? Okay. Don't eat from this tree. What is the consequence if he eats from the tree? He will die. Yes. What's the, the initial consequence is disobedience. Disobedience, sin equals death. Amen? Now, think about this. Was there something evil about the tree? In, in and of itself, did the tree have some kind of magical power? Was it glowing? Huh? Little ones, if you ever see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you might imagine it as, as being glowing or, or shining or sparkling. And that's often how it's depicted, as, as being something that's magical. Was the tr- did the tree have some kind of supernatural power in and of itself? No. As a matter of fact, when Adam ate of the fruit, was it as if when he ate from the fruit that he became a monster because there was some kind of quality in the fruit? No. Not at all. The tree represented what? It represented a command from God. So when Adam looks at the tree, there's a specific command that that Adam connects to that tree. What's the command? Don't eat. If you do, you die. That's pretty simple. Amen? That's pretty simple. So then when Adam saw the tree, he's reminded of God's command. And when God gives a command, is it safe to say that his commands are his law? Yeah. Yeah, it was positive. It was added, but it was his law. It was a law that Adam was to live by. It was a law that shaped Adam's life and and the outlook of life for him. God imposed this command on Adam. And this command carried with it a threat of death. Eat of this tree and you will die. But it also carried with it a promise of life. That Adam, if you obey... You will live. Now, when you read the Bible, when you see the book of Genesis, do you see anywhere in the book of Genesis, especially in chapter two, that there is a promise of life for Adam? Do do, do you see specifically in those words that God promises Adam, you will live if you do thus and so? No, you don't. We are aware of the threat, but where's the promise? Where's the promise? Genesis 2, 9. If the, if the tree of knowledge of good and evil is a symbol of death, then what is Genesis 2.9? The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. What do you think the tree of life was a symbol of? Well, the Bible kind of tells you. Of life, right? Are you with me? Yes? 
when a true covenant is made, the elements or the ingredients of that agreement or commitment are this. A command, law, a threat upon breaking that command or commitment, and a promised reward if you obey. Adam was to obey and God would give him the promised reward. So the presence, are you with me? The very presence of the tree of life was a reminder to Adam of what? Of a reward. Are you with me? Of a reward. That if he obeyed God, he would receive the reward. Now, is, is, is Genesis 2-9 our only example of a promised reward? No. Genesis 3-22 gives us further evidence of Adam's reward. How is that? What do you mean, Genesis 3.22? If you read Genesis 3.22, what do you see? You see there was, there was a cherubim. There, there was an angel who was doing what? What is the angel doing? Good, you're looking at your Bibles. What is the angel doing there in 3.22? Is he guarding something? What is he guarding? The tree of life. Why is he guarding the tree of life? Because Adam has sinned and he has not earned the right. Are you with me? He has not earned the right to the tree of life. What do you mean earned the right? That was his reward. Are you with me? Adam falls into sin and the, 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 the reward that was his has now been guarded because he has not earned it. And it's interesting that when you come to the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation, there's something very special there. Guess what it is? The tree of life. What's it doing in Revelation 22? Do you, do you know that the Revelation 22 is the last book of the Bible? It's, it's called the, the consummation. It's the, the end or completion of all things. What is the tree of life doing there? It is in the new heaven. It is in the new earth. And it is, it is, its leaves, the Bible says in the book of Revelation, are are for healing the nations. And who is it for? It is for those who have put their trust in the Lamb. Wow. It is the reward for those who have put their trust in the Lamb. Wow. In the end of all things, just as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a sign of punishment, the tree of life was a sign or symbol of what? Of life. Now, now going back to the question about the tree of knowledge. Think about the tree of life. Is the tree of life the fountain of youth? Is it that, 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 that special fruit or fountain that, that, that people have gone, crossed seas in order to find so that they may live forever? Is that what, what kind of quality is inside this fruit? You know, what's interesting is uh, Revelation says that, that it bears 12 different kinds of fruit. <laughs> Off subject, but... Was there some kind of special quality in this fruit itself? So in the same way that, that if Adam were to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would turn into a monster. If you eat of the tree of life, you turn into an angel. Does that make sense? Is that what's in the tree of life? No. It's a symbol. It's a sign that is rewarded or given to those that who eat. When you eat of it, it is a symbol that you have been brought from death to life or that you have now life. Does that make sense? Can you wait to eat from that tree? 
Imagine this. The end has all taken place. You have trusted in Christ. You are washed in the blood of, of God, of, of Jesus Christ. And you are now in the new heaven and new earth. And you see before you a tree that is that you are being invited to partake of. Think about that. It is, it is that which Adam was not allowed to, to partake of. You in the new heaven and new earth will, will stand in front of that tree. And you will glorify God with each bite that you take because you have been given the right to the tree. And it is a symbol that you are now alive eternally in God. Man, what a, what a joy. What a, a joy to think about. That is something that is offered to the saints. Can you wait for that? I can't. I, I cannot wait for that. So, when Adam partakes of this tree, when he deliberately disobeys God, how does he become a sinner? If we're thinking about this fruit, and it doesn't like make him a monster, so how does he become a sinner? By eating fruit. Because he knows by experience what it is to disobey God. Are you with me? You and I are born knowing what it is to disobey God because we were born sinners. Adam had never known sin. So when Adam partakes of the fruit, he for the very first time knows by experience what it means to disobey God and sin. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Are you with me? Brothers and sisters, what are the wages of sin? Death. What does death pay you? It pays you debt. It pays you debt. Or what does sin pay you? It pays you debt. God says the wages of sin is debt. So it is with the tree of life. When one eats of the tree of life, they know the joy of true faith in Christ. And again, the tree of life is a symbol that they have been given life from their creator. The wages of sin is death. But, but what is the free gift of God? Huh? Eternal life. The wages of sin is death. You disobey, you die. But what is the free gift of grace? Eternal life. Do you see a work and grace here? Yes. Amen. God made a covenant with Adam. Adam was to obey. Adam was to work. And if he worked, he would live. But if he disobeyed, he would die. That is why it is called the covenant of works. Now, someone may say, I don't like the word works, though. Anybody trip over that word? I don't like the term. This covenant has been called a lot of different things. So if you don't like works, it's been called the Edemic covenant. It's been called the covenant of friendship. It's been called the Edenic covenant. But it's called the covenant of works because Adam was called to obey. Is obedience a work? Yes, it is. It's a command. There's work involved. Adam was to obey the command of God by not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, Adam's obedience was his work. If Adam worked, he would be rewarded. If he did not work, he would be punished. This is why it's appropriately called the covenant of works. Now, in this covenant, Adam did not only represent himself. Are you with me? He represented all human race now when you sin you have a, a last name attached to you especially if your name is like my name where it's not common when you sin 
your sin is, is, is usually just upon you. Now, because you have a last, if you have a last name like mine, then there are people that will at least connect that sin to the rest of that family because it's not a common name. But if you're an Ortiz, you can sin all day long and there's a million Ortizes and it doesn't matter. But with Adam, not so. Adam's sin wasn't just on him. Adam's sin was on everyone. He was our representative. What does that mean, our representative? Theologians call that he's our federal head, or here's a better one, covenant head. So when God makes this covenant with Adam, Adam understands this is not just for you, Adam. You are representing every single person to ever live after this. What you do, if you obey, all men will live. If you disobey, all men will die in their sin. So your obedience is not just for you. It's for all people. It's for all people. Again, if you obey, you earn life for all people. If you disobey, you earn death for all people. Imagine that. Everything that Adam needed was present for him in the garden. Everything that Adam needed was present for him in the garden. He was not wanting or lacking anything. He is brought into this covenant as our representative. One may say, but I thought that work, you know, I thought that we could not earn eternal life. How does Adam earn eternal life? Brothers and sisters, you're correct. You and I, we cannot earn eternal life in the condition that we are born in. You and I. You and I, okay? But you and I were not created in the same condition that Adam was created in. So if you're tripping over the word works and saying, how does, I don't understand this whole works thing. You and I are created in a different condition than Adam. What do you mean by that? I mean this. Adam was created in a able to sin, listen, able not to sin state. Are you with me? You and I are created in a able to sin state or all we know is sin state looking forward to a time where we will not be able to sin you see the differences there so based upon the condition that adam was created in he could earn eternal life because he was created in a condition where he was able to sin and able not to sin and he could continue his sinlessness if he had obeyed God. Are you with me? Pretty simple? Yeah. Adam could have earned eternal life for all, all of us, if he had obeyed God. What did he do? We know the answer to that question, right? Broke covenant. What happened to all of us? Because he's our representative, because he's, he's our covenant head, right? All of us were born in sin and iniquity. When Adam fell, we all fell. Uh, you ever been in a two-legged race? Think about that with all of humanity. <laughs> That's a really weird, I just came in my head. Think about that with all of humanity. You're in, a two, you're in a legged race with all of humanity. One person falls, it's like a domino effect. Everyone falls. Yeah. Adam fell. Able to sin, able not to sin, and he sinned. Represented us all, and we are now all infected with sin. The covenant that God made between Adam, 
or he and Adam was broken and, and all the other covenants thereafter, all the other works of man thereafter could not repair what Adam lost in the garden. Couldn't fix it. Man was lost, unable to save himself, unable to bring any sacrifice, unable to bring any obedience, unable to bring any work that could repair what Adam broke in the garden. Nothing that man could do to save himself. Here, brothers and sisters, that's bad news. That is bad news. And if you understand that, you will see just how much glorious the gospel is. You with me there? If you see that, if you see the depths and the depravity and and the, the hopelessness of that, then the glorious gospel makes that much more sense. The glorious gospel makes you say, whoa, man, that is amazing. And this is not a fairy tale. This is not a fairy tale. Prayerfully, you see it becoming clearer and clearer now. Now, but I don't see the word work or, or, or covenant in the garden. I don't see the word, therefore, it can't be. Let, let me encourage you and also warn you, brothers and sisters, as you study the scriptures, be very careful not to make determinations based upon the presence of or absence of certain words. You with me? Be careful not to make certain determinations, meaning this is what I believe or this is what I don't believe, either because a word is present or because a word is not present. That is a very dangerous way to study the scriptures. For those of you who want to get technical, it's called word concept fallacy. It's false to conclude that because a word is not present, it does not or the, the doctrine does not exist. For example, do you see the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible? Easy one. No. But do you believe in the Trinity? How do you believe in the Trinity when you don't even see the Trinity in the Bible? Because the concept is there. The concept of one eternal God who eternally exists in three persons is found all throughout the scriptures. Father, Son, and Spirit. So it would be, it would be, uh, it would be foolish for you. It would be ignorant of you to... Not, not, not to say you're dumb, but it would be foolish or ignorant for you to deny something that is clearly, clearly implied all throughout the scriptures. One of our friends likes to make this example. He says, if I say home run, base hit, or double play, what am I talking about? Please don't say basketball. Okay. Baseball. Right? Baseball. But did I ever say the word baseball? No, but the concepts are there. The concepts are, are there, and we are talking about a specific game, baseball. So you might not see the word covenant there in the garden, but all the elements and concepts of covenant are present there. A command from God that becomes law, a threat of punishment, a promise of reward. And if someone is reading their Bible, and, and let me just you know, encourage you, read your Bible. This is going to make so much, it's going to be a lot easier on your elders if you're reading your Bible and studying and listening But if you're reading your Bible and you see all these elements, you're going to say, oh, there's a covenant there. Clearly. But even if you were not convinced by that, even if that logic does not suffice for you. And we placed the covenant of works on trial, as it were. And we say, "Okay, covenant works. You're under arrest. And we're going to call certain witnesses to the witness stand to either convict you. 
or acquit you. Now, some of you know that language. You know it well. You watch Law and Order, that's why. That's why you know it well. You watch Matlock, for those of you who are older. I watched Matlock growing up. Take it easy. I watched the Andy Griffith Show. I watched uh, the Beverly Hillbillies. I watched all that. So take it easy. Take it easy. So a conviction, a conviction meaning that we find evidence that there is a covenant of works. Acquittal meaning there is not enough evidence if the glove does not fit, right? We must acquit. So let's do that, okay? So we call first to the witness stand who? Witness number one, we call the Apostle Paul. Now, why would we call the Apostle Paul? Why Paul? Because Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the words of God. So, do you think his testimony is pretty reliable? I would say so. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write on behalf of God. Whatever he says, whatever he says is inerrant. Whatever he says is infallible. Can you imagine that? Whatever testimony he gives is flawless. Okay. So since he gives perfect testimony and since he gives uh, perfect interpretation as well, let's hear what he says. Let's hear his infallible, inerrant, flawless testimony. Here's what he says, Romans 5:19. Can you imagine Paul coming up to the stage and here's what he says, "For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Well, thank you, uh, Apostle Paul. And Paul says, and another word for obedience is work. Who are we talking about? Adam. Adam's failure to, to work resulted in the many becoming sinners. And so also, Paul adds, let me just give you the gospel while I'm here. By one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Because Paul would never hesitate to share the gospel with someone, right? And Paul says, and, I, and I'm not done there. Romans 5, 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Well, thank you, Paul. Adam's obedience brought death. Adam did not complete the work. He did not obey the command that was given to him. Why are all men sinners? According to the Apostle Paul, because Adam did not do the work that God commanded him to do. He did not obey. Thank you, Apostle Paul. You may have a seat. We call next to the witness stand the prophet Moses. Imagine Moses coming up to the witness stand. What is Moses doing when he writes the book of Genesis? What is he doing? Is he just uh, telling you a story? No. He's recording for you. Not only what God has done, what God will do, but he's also interpreting what God has done and what God will do. And why does what he say matters? Because he's also inspired. He's also an infallible writer. He's also a flawless interpreter. So whatever he says is what God has said. So when Moses writes in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's saying, see, in the beginning, God Elohim is creator. And then he takes you to Genesis 2, 4 and says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in that day. The Lord God, he says, made the heavens and the earth. And, and we say, uh, Moses, can you explain more what you mean by Lord God? And he would say, yes, I mean Yahweh Elohim. 
And we would say, Moses, what do you mean by Yahweh Elohim? He would say, that is the covenant name of God. And we would say, Moses, how do you know that? And Moses would say, it's the name that God introduced himself to me as when he met me on Mount Horeb in the, bur- in the burning bush. He said, I am that I am. Wow. Well, thank you for that, Moses. Mo- Moses, can I ask you real quick? How do you know all these things? Because Moses is an inspired writer of God. Thank you, Moses. You may take a seat. We call next to the stage our third witness, the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah comes to the stand and says, the earth lies under its inhabitants. The lies defiled, he says, under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Isaiah 24, 5 through 6. He comes to the witness stand and says, let me tell you why man is in the condition that it is in. Let me give you the source of man's wickedness. The earth lies defiled. Or in another version, he says, the earth is polluted. Why is it polluted? It's polluted by its inhabitants, you and I. How? Because they. We, we have transgressed laws, violated statutes, and listen to that last part, and broken an everlasting covenant. Now, pause for a second. We pollute the earth? I, as if I might be a prosecutor, I would say, what do you mean, Isaiah? We, we, what do you mean that we pollute the earth? Yes, you polluted the earth. How did I pollute the earth? You broke an everlasting covenant. What do you mean? everlasting covenant what covenant is there that makes every single person on the earth a polluter of the earth let me say that again for you let me say that again for you pay attention what covenant is there that makes every single person on the earth a polluter of the earth a defiler of the earth what's the covenant that god made with adam it's the one that adam stood as representative for all people It's the one that the Apostle Paul says caused all men to be sinners. Just as sin came into the world through through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. So when we say, what what do you mean by that, Isaiah? Paul stands up in the the jury box or in, in the crowd and says, I can tell you. And then he quotes for us Romans 5.12. And he does so infallibly, perfectly. Are you with me? Only one covenant makes all men sinners. Only one covenant makes all men polluters, all men defilers. And that is the covenant that God made with Adam. Well, we got one more witness. And he's just going to make it plain. Prophet Hosea, would you come to the stand, please? He comes. Here's what he says. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Verse 7. Like Adam. Like who? Excuse me, Jose, could you say that one more time? Like who? I said like Adam. They have transgressed the covenant. Jose, are you, are, you, are you meaning to tell me that Israel broke a covenant just like Adam broke a covenant? That's what I said. There, they have dealt faithlessly with me. Israel is acting just like Adam who broke a covenant. Adam act, or Adam act faithlessly. Israel is acting faithlessly. Wow. 
another inspired writer, another infallible interpreter who's saying Israel acted just like Adam and broke a covenant. Why should we listen to Hosea? Why should we listen to, to, to Moses or to Paul or to Isaiah? Because they speak for God. And if you don't believe them, gosh, you have more problems than, than you realize. The book of Genesis may not say the word covenant, but Hosea does. Paul implies it. Isaiah pretty much tells you there it is. The Apostle Paul testifies to a covenant. Moses, Isaiah, Hosea, and, and we've already discussed the two trees. Just like baptism is a sacramental sign, and just like the Lord's Supper, as we will take in a few moments, is a sacramental sign, so were the two trees, signs of a covenant. This is a sign of a covenant. Do you realize that? When you partake of the Lord's Supper, it's a sign of a covenant. It's a sign of a covenant. We, we partake of the body and the blood. It's reminding us of the commitment that God has made with his elect. Amen. Now, you are the jury this morning. What's your verdict? I say guilty. There is more than enough evidence to convict. Guilt, conviction, is the reason why the Lord Jesus came. The evidence, the existence of this covenant and its brokenness is why he came. Amen. So if you're looking for the answer that we asked in the beginning, why did he come? Or this is so important because it's why he came. Because this was broken. This is why he's come. It is because the covenant of works was broken that we needed a new covenant. A better covenant. Better than the other covenants that came before. This is the new and better covenant. The first Adam. He plunged all of humanity into sin and guilt with his disobedience. The second Adam. The Lord Jesus Christ came wrapped in human flesh to fulfill a covenant that he had with the Father. A covenant of redemption. Redemption. Why redemption? Because work and the wages of work, the wages of disobedience, resulted in what? Sin and death. You and I were slaves to sin. And Christ comes with a new covenant, a better covenant, a covenant of redemption. Is that just a big word? No, it is showing you. It is telling you that Christ is redeeming those who were stuck and, 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 and trapped in sin. He is redeeming you from your slavery. And by that covenant of redemption, he also secondarily, as Pastor Zay pointed out, he secondarily fulfills what Adam did not fulfill. He does what, what Israel failed to fulfill. All of the other covenants Christ comes and fulfills, but primarily he comes to redeem. He comes to save. He comes to stand as a representative, a covenant head for a new creation, for a people that he had known before the foundation of the world. And did he work? Yes, he worked. He came as a sinless human being, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, lived in active obedience to the law his entire life. Passively submits in death 
becoming our substitute on the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day, which is the Lord's day Sabbath. And what does he do? He enters into rest. He enters into that which Adam failed to enter into. And what does he do now? He is in glory and he is seated. His work is done. When someone sits, they're done. Right? Some of you who work on jobs, people probably sit a lot more than they should. You know, you're not done. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he does his work. And then he sits down to show that he has completed his work. He enters into what Adam lost. He did not fail in that work. And because he did not fail, because he did not fail, he offers to all of his elect to receive this gracious gift. This gracious gift that is free by faith and grace in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. Paradise that was lost is now paradise that is found in Christ. Let me end with this. Romans 5.15. But the, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through one man's trespass... Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Why did the Lord Jesus come? To repair the glorious image of God that was marred by sin. He came to bring back man into fellowship with his maker. And to take us somewhere that was better than the beginning. A place that we will enter when the Lord Jesus Christ breaks through the clouds and takes us home. There's another hymn that's, I don't know if it's as old as the other, but one bright morning, when this life is over, I'll fly away. I can't wait for that. And the imagery of the tree of life. I want to try every single one of those 12 fruits, if I'm allowed. It is glorious. It is better than what Adam had. Brothers and sisters, you know what I just gave you? Oh, you said you taught me the covenant of works. I just taught you the gospel. I just shared with you the gospel. Detailed, yes. Full, yes. But, but is, is, the gospel is... is uh, it's, it's... I can't even explain it. It is... It's shallow enough for you to to walk in and and even deep enough for you to sink in. That doesn't even make sense. But it is that deep. Please, yes, start with the Lord Jesus Christ came to redeem us from sin. But be prepared to give answers for so much more than that. Because it it is even that much more deep. Amen? Let us stand.